From the Partnership for Public Service, you're listening to Transition Lab, a behind-the-scenes look at presidential transitions. I'm David Marchick. With a deep awareness of the responsibility conferred by your trust, I accept your nomination for presidency of the United States. I mean to run hard, to fight hard, to stand on the issues, and I mean to win. Political conventions launch the home stretch for presidential campaigns. They also trigger important aspects of the presidential transition process. Under current law, presidential campaigns are entitled to federal funding and support three days after the second convention. It's also the moment when transition teams traditionally ramp up and become more public. Today, we're talking to Maria Sino and the Reverend Leah Daughtry about the process for setting up a convention, the purpose conventions serve, and the challenges that the pandemic will have on this year's convention. Maria Sino was CEO of the 2008 Republican Convention and has served in senior roles in government, including as Deputy Secretary of Transportation. The Reverend Leah Daughtry served as CEO for two conventions, 2008 and 2016, and also has had a distinguished career, including serving as the DNC's Chief of Staff and led the Democratic Party's Faith Outreach Program. She's also one of the co-authors of a wonderful book for colored girls who have considered politics. Thanks for being with us today. Great. Thanks for having us. Glad to be here. I bet you're both happy that you're not running the conventions this year. Do you wish you were running them? It's an unequivocal no. No. (laughs) How many conventions have each of you been to? So I started in 1984. Uh, So of the last nine I have been to seven, and the two that I missed were because I was running a congressional race and uh, couldn't take the time to uh, go down and either volunteer or work uh, the convention. Got it. How about you, Leah? I started in 92, and I've been to each one since then, except I did not go to Chicago in 96. I can't remember why, but I didn't do that one. Okay. Well, we're going to talk about conventions and their role in the presidential election and the transition. But I wanted to go off topic one moment because we have the Reverend Leah Daughtry with us and you're a social activist. Your parents were social activists, your fifth generation clergy. And I just wanted to get your perspective, you know, as you look at the major milestones in racial justice or racial progress, Brown v. Board of Education, the Civil Rights Act, obviously the election of Barack Obama as president, how big a moment are we in today in your view? I think this is huge, and let's not forget the passage of the Voting Rights Act as well, particularly as we look at women's suffrage these years, the centennial of women's suffrage, but black women didn't really get the uh, right to vote until the Voting Rights Act was passed. This is as big a moment as it comes. I think we will look back on this as one of the sea change uh, moments in our nation's history. When you look at uh, who who is protesting, the depth, the breadth, of the people who are out in the streets, who are declaring that Black Lives Matter, who are uh, looking for electoral change, looking for uh, systemic change. It is as deep and as broad as the civil rights movement was. And I think um, it will create the kind of groundswell and the kind of awareness and attention that's necessary in order to create the kind of level playing field that all Americans need in order to achieve their, their version of the American dream. 
Well, I hope you're right, and I hope that we, the country takes advantage of this moment and makes real progress. Um, and thank you for everything you do to advance social justice, Leah. So thank let's you. turn to the subject of conventions. So they used to be where actual nominations were decided. They were fought out. Today, they don't really play that role. So in your view, and maybe Maria, we can start with you, what is the role of a political convention today? Well, at one point, conventions were really about rallying grassroots, energizing volunteers. Uh, it was traditionally driven by getting positive media, getting your message out. And it, it gave you a springboard, if you will, for the general election. I think today they've become perhaps less important. The nominees are decided before, where one-time conventions, you you were making kingmakers They've become maybe more technically uh, necessary formalities. Mm-hmm. And Leo, when you you've run two conventions, I I don't know if you're a genius or a glutton or maybe both. <laughs> I'd go with but, glutton. <laughs> historically, what you won is a big bounce. You know, Clinton got one. I think Obama got one. But how did you define the success of your conventions? And is it better to go first or second when you're planning a convention? Well, you know, you always, you, you prefer to go second uh, because that gives you some time to do any adjustments you might want to do based on whoever went first. But the right to go second generally, uh, at least uh, conventionally, has gone to the party who holds the White House. You want the bounce, obviously, because, you know, it springboards you, as Maria said, into the general election. So getting 7, 10, 15 points out of your convention is is huge. Now, I, I will say that in two. 2008, we were starting, we thought we had a good bounce. We had a great night at Invesco Field, but then Senator McCain announced Sarah Palin the next morning and it completely killed my bounce. So as the nation's attention turned to the Republicans and the historic moment of having a woman on the Republican ticket. So, but you know, you, you look forward to that. It's a great moment for the for the nominee uh, to ride off into, you know, this great wave of public support and public approval following the conventions. And I would just note that Maria was in charge of that convention. And so maybe yes, she was. Maria <laughs> left your bounce. And that was your that was your goal, Maria, right? Because it's both an offensive strategy of getting positive press and positive messaging for your candidate, but also undermining or undercutting the message from the opponent, right? Well, listen, in theory, it was a great, great call. Um, unfortunately, that bounce was about two weeks <laughs> and <laughs> it went away very quickly. So uh, interesting, uh, maybe uh, with regards to uh, the importance of vetting vice presidential candidates, which I know Vice President Biden is doing right now. And I think we all learned uh, from that. It was great to be having the first woman on the Republican ticket. And as Leah said, it was a, it was, it was a tremendous amount of press. Um, but the, it, it, it did not last very long, uh, given the fact that perhaps, um, uh, governor Palin wasn't is prepared for that particular role as it, we would have needed. Right. And we had Bob Rizzi on this podcast a few weeks ago, and he said that he did the vetting for that. And he reminded our listeners that, the vetting of Sarah Palin started at midnight one night and ended at 3 a.m., which is, I joke that it wasn't best practice, but, you know, <laughs> I, I think 
the other thing that happens at a convention is that there's this elaborate process for hammering out party platforms. Are those platforms important and do they actually have a real role in the way a, a candidate governs as president if he or she is elected? So Maria, do you have a view on that? So you want me to be honest? Yes. You know, we traditionally have put an enormous amount of time. I think we might even agree. You go through a lot of pains because you're trying to keep everybody happy. But in the end, nobody's happy. And you have to produce a document. Uh, and there's a lot of give and take. And I think the process is a good process. It, it makes you every four years really take a look at your policies. I'd honestly say that after that document is printed and handed out, if you ever look at it again, I would be surprised until the next mm. platform is written. So um, in my mind, uh, you know, theory is great, but I'm not sure in practice that uh, it, it means a whole lot. Let's go to the this issue of how you cite a convention, where it goes. So you all ran conventions, if I'm correct, in Denver and Philadelphia for Leah and then in Minneapolis for Maria. You know, if you're the mayor of Charlotte, North Carolina, you might be wondering, why did I organize this convention and what is, is it a positive or negative for my city today? So in your view, what's the process for selecting a city? Well, I'll start. Um, yes, I was the CEO of, uh, for Denver and Philadelphia, but I was also involved in site selection for New York in 92 and Boston in 2004. And the democratic process is the CEO was selected after the city is selected. So you don't know who the CEO is going to be when you, when you start this process. It, the biggest boon for the city is the economic impact the money that gets spent in the city and local businesses and the hotels and the restaurants. But conventions are post 9-11 more and more complicated, more and more security concerns. So there are a limited number of cities who actually have the infrastructure that's required by all the security arrangements. And I, and I suppose any mayor that you ask uh, during the planning process <laughs> would all say, why did I do this? Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> This is probably was not my best moment. After it's over, probably half of them say this was the worst thing I ever did. And the other half said this was pretty good for my city. When you plan a convention, you're essentially running a startup, but then it's a multi-hundred million dollar operation that you're building in a matter of months. So how many people do you need to recruit to run a convention? Leah? Paid staff end up being about 150 uh, but the, we use thousands, thousands of volunteers. In Philadelphia, we used about fifteen or 16,000 volunteers, and the same in Denver. And you're right, it's a startup that starts from, you know, one person being me <laughs> to it growing to uh, <laughs> to this, this 150, 200-person operation, including interns and volunteers, round-the-clock operations. It's It's quite a mammoth thing, but, you know, and as long as it takes us to build it, it only takes about a week to tear it all down and to restore the arena to its uh, original uh, standings and ripping the carpet out and getting the equipment and everything back together. So it really closes down very quickly. Maria, let's, let's talk about the 2008 convention. What was the best part of that convention and what was the biggest headache you had to deal with? <laughs> Well, you know, I, for me, the best part of the convention um, is, is probably more personal. It, I love working with young people. 
it, it's a great opportunity to actually find a lot of very, very talented young folks that are looking to perhaps leave one job and bump up to the next level in a, in a particular job, whether it's communications, whether it's policy. And I also think it's, it's really great to get to know local officials in a city and get to know about the city. Um, so I think probably Lee and I were the ambassadors of the city and we had more statistics and facts about the city than probably the chamber of commerce at one point. And I can only imagine, uh, I know Lee had probably had the same number every day you were out there selling the convention to the locals. You were giving two, three, four speeches or interviews uh, to various groups of people trying to convince them why it was a great thing, but it was fun to, to do that. The least fun part is probably raising money. And trying to make sure that, uh, you know, that now it's the candidate before it was some government uh, money. Um, but, you know, making sure that you had the money uh, to do what needed to be done to get the arena in shape and put the program on that the candidate wanted. And a lot of, a lot of times candidates don't get involved or in some cases interested until in, a little later in the process. And you've already you know, maybe designed a stage, which maybe they don't agree with and they want it changed. So, um, you know, again, the fundraising part, it, I didn't ever find it was a lot of fun. Right. And Leah, in 2008, you did something unique and unprecedented, which was to have the Thursday night speech by the nominee outside in a football stadium. So how much time did you get to plan that? And what were the biggest challenges in that exercise. Barack Obama became the nominee uh, after California. We had about a month to really get it planned. So there was additional money that needed to be raised and we had to figure out actually how to get it done. The biggest challenge for that evening was the equipment because obviously it's post 9-11, you've got to secure both sites in terms of magnetometers, bike rack, all of the things that the Secret Service Homeland Security require. And there wasn't enough bike rack in the state of Colorado or the three surrounding states to allow us to provide security at both Pepsi Center and Invesco at the same time. We had to, on Wednesday night, as soon as the last speech, as soon as the minister said, amen, and the gavel went down, we immediately start tearing down the bike rack and the magnetometers to get them all over to Invesco, which we transported on golf carts across the highway to Invesco Field to complete the security perimeter to the Secret Service's satisfaction. So that was quite a feat. And of course, transporting everything meant that Pepsi was unsecured. So we lost a lot of equipment that night. Televisions, you know, just things just went missing. Oh my gosh. Well, you're giving a roadmap to thieves in the future here. (laughs) (laughs) Our insurance company was very busy that year. (laughs) The biggest challenge at the last convention you ran, Leah, was the tension between the Clinton camps and the Sanders camps. So what happened there and how did you resolve that? In many ways, the two conventions were similar because you had in 08, a quote unquote establishment candidate in Hillary Clinton versus an upstart candidate in Barack Obama, who brought in a lot of new people, people, people who weren't familiar with the party rules, who'd never been to a convention, who didn't know how it worked. That was mirrored in 2016 
where you had Senator Sanders now bringing in a lot of new people who didn't know the system, didn't know how to work, didn't understand the party rules, had never even thought about it before. So a lot of the tension was both on the policy level and between the two campaigns, but also between the Clinton folks and the Bernie delegates who tended to not be aware of of the rules, uh, and so and that created a lot of tension in the platform process and the rules process on the floor. I had to be very creative in how you navigated the delegates on the floor. Um, but in the end, it was just we just kept talking. The two sides just kept talking, uh, and you know there were some concessions, such as the roll call vote. We let the Senator Sanders wanted the roll call vote to go all the way through to Wyoming, as opposed to stopping at the point where Senator Clinton clearly had the the, the required number. So we agreed to that, and we were able to come to some sort of compromise without devaluing or what Senator Clinton wanted. So it was a tough few weeks, lots of sleepless nights, but to both sides' credit, they kept talking. You engineered something actually was quite moving, which was when they got to Vermont, Senator Sanders actually nominated Secretary Clinton, and let's listen to that. Madam Chair, I move that the convention suspend the procedural rules I move that all votes, all votes cast by delegates be reflected in the official record. And I move that Hillary Clinton be selected as the nominee of the Democratic Party for President of the United States. So let's turn to this year. So we're going to have two virtual conventions. What will actually happen this year? So Maria, the Republican convention is going first. So let's talk about that. Well, you know, I think it's going to be greatly truncated. Uh, I think you're going to see, you know, a, a convention that I, I won't put words into Leah's mouth, but I know there on several occasions we actually got together after um, our conventions in 2008, and we're trying to figure out, you know, how could we do this that would be not as costly and, um, you know, more efficient. Um, and you never got there because the party – they wanted that four or five day convention. They weren't going to make it shorter. And I think now out of necessity, this is an opportunity to look to the future of do, do conventions have to be four to five days? Do they have to be in the same city? And do you have to bring all uh, delegates and alternates to one location? So I, I think that's a positive. And I saw that Stephanie Cutter briefed reporters yesterday. We're taping this in, in late July. And she said that the there's only going to be 300 people at the convention in Milwaukee. So Leah, how do you create excitement and energy out of a convention if you only have 300 people and they're social distanced? Well, you know, remember who the audience is. So in any convention, no matter how how many people are there, uh, you know, you've got the audience that's in the arena and in the hall. And of course, there's tremendous energy for the speakers who are there. I'm, I preach all the time. I speak all the time. You love an audience, right? <laughs> because mm-hmm. you feed off that energy. But really, in any convention cycle, the bulk of the people who are watching are in their homes, are in you know their their living rooms in their churches in their union halls watching the convention the that's the bulk of the viewers so to that point not much is changing 
in the in terms of the need to provide some exciting programming that will keep people glued to their devices. Um, now, what you what the challenge this time is people are have been glued to devices now for you know 959 weeks. So I I don't I don't think that the audience who's watching on television will be diminished at all. Uh, you just have fewer people in the hall for them, fewer people wearing funny hats and and pins and you know donkey <laughs> shoes. Uh, right. for people at home to look at and enjoy. You, do you think it's possible to get a bounce out of the convention given the lack of drama? I don't know. I mean, look, I think Netflix will tell you that they're doing pretty well right now. <laughs> people right. are looking for things to watch. Um, and I think both sides really have an opportunity to do something really exciting that will hold uh, the viewer's attention. And it's going to be all on their production and all on their messaging because this is this is a, a critical election and people are looking to make decisions and both sides have to put their best foot forward to give something to the American people that tells them how they're going to lead in the next four years. So I think people will watch. Uh, and if the, if the programming is exciting, people will stay the two whole two hours. If not, you know, there's plenty else on TV to watch. So the bar right. is pretty high for, I think, both sides. And do you think they'll have the traditional roll call vote just via Zoom and they'll just go from state to state on Zoom or Zoom equivalent? Is that what they'll do? That That is the plan. We've already received our voting instructions. I'm an automatic delegate. I've already gotten my um, voting instructions. Um, and some of the voting actually starts in a couple of weeks with the platform and so forth. Uh, so yeah, we'll, and I think for the roll call, what they're planning is to do that on the first night instead of the third night and we'll go state by state, which is, which could be very beautiful and very creative as you go to iconic locations across our, our American landscape to uh, state what the will of the Democrats in your, in your state is in terms of the nominee. One of the biggest challenges that you face in every convention when you run when you plan one is picking out who speaks when. So I, I presume that you never had a politician complain to you about their speaking slot, or did that happen maybe once or twice? <laughs> you said what was the uh, what was one of the 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 the, uh, the, the worst or the prob problematic things? Um, right. It, I, for me, it was definitely. Um, one, you made a, a couple of people happy when you called to tell them, hey, you've been given a chance to speak uh, and a slot to speak at the Republican National Convention. And then it was the 15,000 calls you got of people wanting to know when their time was to speak at the Republican National Convention. And of course, you had no slot for them. Uh, and even sometimes the people you tried to make happy that they actually had a slot, maybe they weren't happy with the time slot. Um, or maybe they really believe that they should have more time, sometimes more than the candidate or the nominee. Uh, so I think, uh, and, and I'll tell you, uh, elected officials were the worst. <laughs> and I won't name any. Leah, how about you? <laughs> Never going to say. I think the biggest okay. nightmare I had was the year that someone who thought they should have more time actually took more time. And I was sitting in my seat <laughs> on the podium watching them go off script. And I said, "Oh my God, they're going to—they're going off script. They're off the prompter. This is not good. And this particular person is. This is not good. This particular person went over about ten minutes, which meant we had to bump somebody. And the mm. person we had to bump was another elected, and that person was really, really unhappy. I mean, and I'm 
completely understating this. And so, you know, <laughs> now when I do programs and that person's names come up, I like I, 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 somebody else talked to him because he's he's prone and liable to go off prompter and screw up mm-hmm. all your whole program. So who do you think will be the breakout speakers at the Republican convention, Maria? You know, it's going to be interesting. I think you're going to see probably more diversity, uh, as we should on the Republican side. Nikki Haley, uh, for example, you might see somebody been a governor, somebody who has maybe accomplished a couple of things in their states that are important. Uh, but she's one of the first people that come to mind. You know, given the pandemic, uh, it'd be interesting to see with regards to potential speakers who. Uh, perhaps uh, can talk about health care. It'll be a very, very interesting convention on the Republican side because we don't really, you know, we have a vice president, so we don't have that announcement. So it'll be very interesting to see uh, what uh, and who will speak. And how do you think they'll deal with Maryland Governor Larry Hogan? He's very prominent. He's done a good job with COVID. Uh, He chairs the National Governors Association, but he's been critical of President Trump. So do you think he'll get a prominent speaking spot or maybe he would find himself early one morning in a not prominent spot? I wouldn't be surprised if Larry Hogan, if he got a, a, a you know, a, a good spot or prominent spot. Um, I, I think it's just going to be harder this time, given um, the amount of time um, that the conventions are actually going to be televised. Leah, who do you think will be the breakout stars this year for the Democratic side? We have so many great people, of course, and you know exactly as Maria said, we we're only doing two hours a night, and, uh, and I don't know how many speaker speakers we really are going to have. But you know, besides, of course, Biden, which we expect, but whoever the vice presidential nominee is, is going to be, it will be a breakout moment for that person on the national stage. And I would say those who are on the list and who don't make it may also be uh, important voices to hear from, such as Akeisha Lance Bottoms or a Tammy Duckworth. Uh, of course, Stacey Abrams is uh, a, a new upcoming strong voice for the party. We've got a number of women governors now, a number of men's new members of Congress, um, such as Jamal Bowman, who was just elected a school teacher, who was just his excellent speaker. Um, folks like Ayanna Presley, you know, you got Gina Raimondo in Rhode Island. And then, of course, there are our, our Democrats from rural states and uh, uh, plain states. So I think there are any number of people who could be uh, great breakout speakers. Uh, the, the question is, how many of those do you have in a night when you're only doing two hours in a night? And on the last night, of course, the vice president, who is the nominee, will take the bulk of that time. So it, it's, it's going to be an interesting. I'm looking forward to see how they parse the time out. And Leah, you're an ordained minister, and you did something interesting in 2008, which was, I think it was the first modern democratic convention that actually started with a religious component. So what was the meaning of that decision? It was. It was. We held an interfaith gathering the day before the convention started, where we brought together uh, people of all faiths uh, to sort of start the convention in a sacred, prayerful moment. Uh, and you really could see the big tent on display as our pro-life and pro-choice uh, clergy were all together, uh, Orthodox, conservative, reformed Jews, uh, the Sikh, the Hindu, you name it. Uh, if you claimed uh, to be a person of faith, you were welcome. Um, 
And what we really wanted to do was one, for those of us who are people of faith, to be together, to start our convention off in a sacred moment uh, where we celebrate our connection to the to Creator God. But beyond that, the other message was, you know, there's always a lot of folks who think that the other party has a lock on faith, or are the people that are the faithful, and all of us Democrats are are sacrilegious, and it's just not true. Uh, and so we wanted to really share the message that uh, the Democratic Party is the home of people of faith. Uh, we are there. We are vibrant. We are strong. And many of us are Democrats, f- for my part, because my faith leads me to those values. And we wanted to make an opportunity to affirm that uh, in a very strong, vocal and uh, out front way. Got it. Okay. Let's close with something I like to do, which is a lightning round. So one word or two word answers, quick answers, and we'll go through these quickly. Okay, so you've been to maybe somewhere between a dozen and 20 conventions between the two of you. So best speaker you've seen ever. Maria, let's start with you. Well, ever um, is a long time, but I have to say uh, probably one of the best speeches and really the best presentation of a speech, Sarah Palin. She did an excellent job. That might've been the most important thing she did. And as I said, after that, it was downhill. She gave a great speech. She did. She did. Leah, how about you? I think somewhere between Barbara Jordan uh, and the Reverend Jesse Jackson, 1984 speech. Yeah. Barbara Jordan spoke in 1992 at the convention and she was actually my former professor at uh, University of Texas. She's a wonderful, wonderful person. I loved her. Um, All right. How about the worst speech you ever saw? Leah, let's start with you. And you can't cop out of this question. I hate to say this because I just love him, but Bill Clinton's speech in what was that 1988 I think he might oh it was just so long it broke every rule of good speeches it's just it was it was deadly I love you president did, Clinton I do <laughs> he did recover by going on I think it was the tonight show with an hourglass and and basically they timed it and he made fun of himself but that was not his yeah. finest speech and he's a wonderful speaker all right Maria your speech you saw at a Republican convention Probably the worst speech, uh, one that went over, was baffling to everybody, Republicans, Democrats, and independents, uh, was Clint Eastwood in the chair. With the chair, right? The empty chair, right? Exactly. And to me- So maybe describe that for our audience. Well, um, you know, McCain campaign controlled um, much of the um, programming, and we had all our folks working, but they wanted to have a star. And you had asked that question earlier, uh, David, you know, you know, all these stars. Well, we traditionally don't, Republicans, we just don't attract as many Hollywood types. But, you know, they said that Clint Eastwood was coming to the convention and he was going to speak. And not only was he speaking, he's going to have a prominent uh, spot. So there was a fair amount of excitement. And then you saw him come on stage and they brought on a chair and essentially, for the next 40 minutes, Clint Eastwood spoke to the chair. So my last question for, is for Leah, which is, you have a certain ritual that you've done before the start of each convention. What is that? I like to go to the hall uh, on Sunday night and around midnight when it's empty. Uh, no one's there uh, except for a couple of cleaning people. And I just like to walk around and I walk through 
all of the sections and all of the delegation sections and just try to um, get ready for the next day, but also remember the ancestors and in particular, uh, Fannie Lou Hamer, who was not allowed to be seated as a delegate at our 1968 convention. And I am grateful to the work that she did that made it possible for me so many years later, an African-American woman to serve as CEO of the same party that kept her out. And it's a testimony to me about how far our party has come and how uh, the, the power of the people really can make change, including inside the political structure. So that's my practice uh, every Sunday night before the convention begins, at least the two that I run, is that I just walk through, just me, by myself, and pray and hear the ancestors speak to me as I get ready for the marathon that's coming. Well, that's a moving tribute. And let me thank you for being on Transition Lab. Let me thank you for your leadership of the conventions. And most importantly, let me thank you for your service to our country. So thanks for being with us. Thank you. Thank you very much. And we're going to close with some excerpts from some of the greatest convention speeches in the last 40 years. So let's listen to those. Now, even as we speak, there are those who are preparing to divide us. The spin masters, the negative ad peddlers, who embrace the politics of anything goes. Well, I say to them tonight, there is not a liberal America and a conservative America. There is the United States of America. There is not a black America and a white America and Latino America and Asian America. There's the United States of America. We grow good people in our small towns with honesty and sincerity and dignity. And I know just the kind of people that writer had in mind when he praised Harry Truman. I grew up with those people. They're the ones who do some of the hardest work in America, who grow our food and run our factories and fight our wars. They love their country in good times and bad, and they're always proud of America. How we explain that when someone is cruel or acts like a bully, you don't stoop to their level. No, our motto is, when they go low, we go high. And the Congress will push me to raise taxes and I'll say no, and they'll push and I'll say no, and they'll push again and I'll say to them, read my lips, no new taxes. There is despair, Mr. President, in the faces that you don't see, in the places that you don't visit, in your shining city. In fact, Mr. President, this is a nation. Mr. President, you ought to know that this nation is more a tale of two cities than it is just a shining city on a hill. If you like Transition Lab, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app.